Hello, this is Daryl here, sending love as always. Thank you for tuning in. I just want to say, if you like this interview, you can check our website for companion workbooks, action guides, tools, checklists, templates, and show notes with links for everything mentioned on the call. Just visit bestbusinesscoach.ca. That's best, B-E-S-T, businesscoach.ca. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Peter Bigard, Global Luminary in Innovation Management and Design Thinking. With a rich tapestry of roles from R&D engineer to director for service design, Peter's journey is marked by his passion for fostering global innovation. He's adept at managing global projects, developing organizational innovation capabilities, and facilitating design thinking across diverse sectors. An alumnus of the University of Glasgow and Cranfield University, Peter's academic prowess complements his practical experience. As the managing partner at Global Teams, he's transformed businesses worldwide. Whether it's coaching leaders, implementing service design, or leading digital CX solutions, Peter's expertise is sought after by industry giants. A true visionary, he's the bridge between innovation and execution. I've asked Peter to join us here today so we can all design our lives, businesses, and teams to be a little bit better. So Peter, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. How are you doing? Fine. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. It's a yeah, pleasure to be here. It's an honor and you pleasure will. to have you here. And I, I'd love to get into the nuances and the nuts and bolts of what is excellence in your field. But before we even go down that road, how did you even get involved in this? Were your parents involved in business? How did you start off on this path? That's a great question. Thank you. My parents was, my mother was a nurse. My father was a teacher. So you could say from that perspective, it doesn't seem obvious for me to start a business. But what they shared was an empathy for helping people and learning. That was their, that was their core. That was they what they lived for. That brought me, and at the same time, they gave us, my sister and my brother, very much free choices to do what we thought was really important, what we liked to do. And one of the things that we liked to do was building stuff. My brother and I built all kinds of things from small cars to small houses, anything. We would build stuff. We would get a motorbike. We would take it apart and put it together again just to find out how does it work, that kind of stuff. And that's how we got curious about how things work. My brother, he chose a path as an electrical engineer, and I chose a path as an aerospace, or you could say to begin with, as a naval architecture in operations. That's how it all got started. And until about 2002, that was what I was doing. I was doing research and development organizations. I was doing innovation management. I was doing operations in different versions and got to learn how does organizations work? How, what is it that makes them tick? And most, most importantly, what does make people tick? What is it that make people work well together? And especially in a global context. So at some point, was one of these moments, you could say, defining moments for you. I was working at Airbus in Hamburg, doing some advanced work in structural design. I was working this team of five with different nationalities. And at some point, the team leader, he began to explain the how we were not achieving what we were meant to achieve. And I was beginning to think, why was that happening? Because in the room was PhDs and really smart people. The one thing that stood out was that we came from different nationalities. We came from different cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I had conversations with people in other organizations, among, other, among others, CERN and ESA, 
European Space Agency about how they experienced it. And they had the same experience that even though the collective people from all over the world to work closer together, very smart people with PhDs or multiple PhDs, they had this challenge that when people from different cultures came to back together to innovate things, it didn't always happen completely smoothly. Mm. So what was it? When I did my master MBA in Glasgow, one of the things that one of the teachers said casually, he threw a book on the table and said, maybe you should read this. And that was Hofstede's book about intercultural organizations or international organizations. And he said, maybe this is worth for you to read when you're doing international business development. And I picked it up as one of the few ones and I basically swallowed it. That, was, that gave a lot of answers to just that question. What is it that happens between people with different cultural backgrounds when we're working together? And one of my points was always, when I was talking about this topic, it is quote unquote, easy to take a stack of drawings, quality standards, delivery standards, delivery schedules, and go to China, again, just take an example, sure. and ask them to deliver on these standards at these times, and we've got this amount of money that we can spend on it. That's relatively easy. That is not to say that it is easy, right. but it's a different go there and say, I've got this idea, could we collaborate around this idea? That's an entirely different, because there's a lot of trust that has to be built into it. And that was really got me started. I love that. Yeah, I so, can agree with that 100%. I can imagine with your very global background, you must have the same experiences quite often. I mean, you reminded me when I've lived in Japan for three years in Tokyo, and I felt like I went through a learning curve there, obviously culture shock and that. And I remember when I was going back to Canada, I remember thinking, so this is both agreeing with your point, but also talking about how some things are just innate in working with people. And I remember when I was leaving Japan, I was like, oh, I'm so glad I'm going to be going back to Canada. Everyone will speak English there. So I'll have no more miscommunications. Communication is going to be so much easier. And then I remember when I got back to Canada, I still saw them like happening. And it just made me laugh that I thought it was the language, but it was really people. It was really just dealing with people. Yeah. Communication is always difficult, always. It's so easy. Even I've lived, I've been married to my wife for 14 years. And even though we know each other really well, and we can end each other's sentences. There's always still, you sometimes cannot just assume that the other one has understood exactly what you meant. And across cultures, that's even more difficult because of our different worldview, our different backgrounds for what does one thing mean when we say it or when we do it? What does that mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There's also people, I'm sure everyone's had the experience where they say something and then they hear what they said and they're like, oh, that's not what I meant. So that's yes. even an element too. It's not even the other person. Sometimes it's ourselves, yes. not articulating yeah. ourselves clearly. So I, I, yeah. And when it comes to articulating ourselves, explaining what you really mean can be really difficult when it's very complex things. I often catch myself in somebody asking me a question I, and it's a very complex question. I would like to answer it. But where do you start when you explain something? Because it's a very complex question. So at which point in this very complex answer can you start to make sure that you get the exactly at what they are asking you about? Mm -hmm. Because nothing is simple. You simplify it. And of course, something is simple. But when it comes to communication, we have to be really careful where we start and what assumptions we make about the person we are talking to in lots of context. Yeah. Lots of 
Yeah, 100%. This really feeds into the research I told you about before we, we did the interview that we, we tried to figure out what are the common denominators amongst all the research studies that have been done on success in business? What are the critical success factors? And we found eight of them. And one of them is self-efficacy. And once we knew the factors, we started going, okay, what makes up self-efficacy? And for us, that's our research. It's specific personality traits, leadership skills, and disciplines. And the leadership skills, what is leadership? We really narrowed it down. And for us in our research, we say leadership is self-awareness skills, communication, cooperation skills, emotional intelligence skills, and adaptability. And that's like what you're talking about here, leading a team. If you have a team of people and they're from different cultures, different countries, and you want to try to lead them, while well, this trouble happens. And that right in my head, I was like, oh, communication, cooperation skills, emotional intelligence. And they have to know hmm. themselves as well. That's the other part, right? There, yeah. 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 And when it comes to leadership, one thing is a lot of research has been done on this topic, especially over the last 10, 15 years. And when it comes to leadership, then what is considered good leadership depends on where you're coming from in the world also, to a large extent. So what where you may be in the Nordic countries, northern part of Europe, have a very, you could say, laid back and inclusive leadership style, democratic. In other parts of the world, including Japan or the Philippines, the UAE, the Arab world, it's a very different way. Some What is considered good leadership is different. You expect a more direct, more exact, tell me what to do approach to leadership. Right. So what I often have experienced when I'm working with global organizations, developing global organizations, supporting or coaching a leader from Europe, moving to Japan or moving to Singapore, one of the big challenges is always, if you come there where your approach to leadership that has worked so well for you in Europe, in Denmark or Norway, England, and you go to Singapore or Japan and you apply the same approach, lots of leaders over the years have experienced it just doesn't work. And the, the unfortunate thing is they're not even aware of what's going on here. Yeah, they think so well where I came from, what is happening, and they get frustrated. And what happens is too often they move back home with a defeat, with a loss, with a yep. so you go on their career, and they do not know what was going on. And right. all it takes is of coaching a little bit of intercultural training. Um, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, South Korea, their airline had one of the worst safety records, you know, in of all the countries recorded. And so what they found was that they, I think it's called the power distance index, which is what you're referring to, how flat hierarchies are, so to speak. And so in some cultures, hierarchies are not flat at all. And you need to address your superiors and acknowledge their superiority on Japan your boss typically is your MC at your wedding type thing. There's like a, not only is there a power distance index, but there's also, there's like that guy is, or girl is going to be the MC of your wedding because they're your boss, not because they're the best person at that. And yeah. so in Korea, how they got around it was they had all the pilots work in English. It was a way to try to extract them from the culture because that's what they were finding to the flight recordings. There's one where it was something like the co-pilot was trying to alert the pilot that like, hey, we have no fuel. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You're like finishing my yeah, sentence. Yeah, one of the cases, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And what I think is so important to emphasize is that it's not good or bad, it's just different. And what is unfortunate, too often considered or thought of or experienced from the person who is experiencing it is that it is a sense of good or bad. Is my good leadership style that works so well at home they don't understand what good leadership is and right. they think the same the other way. And back to communication, if you can just create 
quote unquote, just create the context where they can start talking about it yeah. in a global so that they can find out what is it that we consider good leadership, what is we considered being a good team member, exactly having those conversations, but also using different kinds of assessments to do this yep. is a tremendous support to ensure success for a global team, especially back to in a global innovation team. And I work with lots of global innovation teams where, again, trust is so important. How do we, simple things like, how do we develop trust? And they're different. So for me, or for you and me, I'm guessing you're Canadian. Yep. Uh, I have family in Canada. I've been to Canada a number of times. So I assume that I know, but I don't. But I assume here. Right. But, but my point is that there are certain cultures, expectations to what does it take to create trust. And for some of us, it's simply just having this conversation, getting to each other and, okay, I like this guy, that's enough. And we begin to trust. For yeah. others, it has to be much more about, I need to see your academic records. Yeah. And not only to see them, I need to see your certificate for me to trust you enough to work with you in a, and when it comes to an innovation context, suddenly that can become, in a global teams team, that can become a very complex situation because we've got different needs when it comes to developing trust. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think that's really important. And I know there's a lot of naive people out there that I was the same way, again, to go back to when I went to Japan. And by the way, just to, just to close the loop on that, South Korea has one of the best safety records now for airlines. I don't know. Yeah. So just so no one's afraid, Seoul Airport, I forget what it's called, but it's, I've been the that was one of my favorite airports before COVID. I haven't traveled much since, but just to put that out there, they used to have one of the worst safety records, then they have one of the best. And how they did it was getting out of that cultural context and having all pilots work in English, which suddenly allowed them to transcend those cultural power distance indexes. And I really think trust is a huge part. I'm so glad you brought that up. So just to recap. Oh. Can I just add to that one? Yeah, what yeah, is, yeah. Because you mentioned it, there's so much of our cultural assumptions that is tied very closely to the language we're speaking. So as you have experienced, I'm sure lots of other experience, when you're speaking one language, for me, it's Danish, there are cultural values that is closely connected to what I can say and what I do say. Yeah. When I speak English, very different, or German or Dutch or French, depending on what language we're talking, speaking, then suddenly that also impacts hugely on how we are acting on what we're doing. But a hundred percent, no, a hundred percent. I used to say, cause I speak English, French and Japanese. And then I've, I've learned some Spanish and now I'm learning Tagalog in the Philippines. And I've learned pieces of other language, like Swahili and Nubian, because of my travels. But I always say, I always feel like I have a different personality whenever I speak a different language. Like, I feel like my character is different. My, my, how I'm expressing myself, like the way you structure your thoughts. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. I wanted to recap about how you talk about developing trust. And so you mentioned two things. One is getting to know people. And the other one is like a track record, like demonstrable track record, either academics or something that's binary and undeniable. Is that fair to say that there's kind of two tracks or would you say there's more than that? It's more than that. There's nine, 12 different aspects. And we're using, I've been using uh, different tools developed to exactly assess. So what is it that for you as a person, not you come from that culture, but you as a person, what is it that is important to you? And yes, there's the track record, academic one, there's the time we take. So as among others, but there's a lot more. Got it. Okay. 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 That seems like a big topic. So what would you recommend to someone who's starting out or struggling working internationally, maybe trying to do business internationally? 
either whether it's in teamwork or whether it's trying to get clients across borders. Get a coach, get a coach. Yeah, That's what yeah, yeah. It, because what often global leaders or people with having worked international, internationally for many years, they've got all the stories. And for some, it comes natural. For others, they need to reflect reflect on so what was going on here. And the coach or a good friend, and you, we know that we've got good friends that are coaches or vice versa. But in that moment where you have this experience, you being able to take one step back and reflect on, so what really happened? What did they really mean? What was the reason for this? Having that reflection and having somebody to help you going through that reflection is helpful. Mm. And then naturally, books, et cetera, et cetera. But just having that ability to reflect on this moment where you're learning, this learning opportunity that is provided with so many times. And mm. I'm sure you've had, back to your pilot, if, they, if you had somebody with them that knew and could see what was going on in that cockpit, coaching them through to understand what was going on here, how that communication impacted, et cetera, et cetera. That's the one thing that I would recommend. And yeah. it doesn't, again, emphasize this is not, it doesn't have to be a somebody you pay for. It can be just a good friend that know you really well and can take that one step back for you. Yeah, um, I think that's powerful. And since we're doing this in English, I think it's important to say that just because we are speaking English, there are cultural inherent cultural biases in the language that us as English speaking individuals may not even notice. That's yes. that's been even through the pandemic and that talking with people, it's been like people don't understand how they see the world through a like a lens. Like your cultural, you are not even aware that you're wearing those that go those goggles because you were born in it. You are like a fish that was born in the ocean. You have no concept that there might be a universe of air elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so that is, I was so naive when I went to Japan. I remember people were like, oh, what about the culture shock? Like I, I was so naive. I remember my friend, we visited friends in British Columbia for a few months. And then we continued on our flight and went, and I remember my friend dropped me off at the airport and he was like, sayonara. And I was like, oh yeah, that's Japanese, right? Getting on the plane. I didn't speak anything. I had no idea what I was in for. And in my mind, I'm like, culture shock, smulture shock. We're all humans. We all have hair and skin and hearts. And listen, this is real true. There is truth to that. And we are all one and we all share this planet, but there are, help, Lord help me, there are real differences in value systems in etiquettes, in process between cultures. And I didn't realize, it took me a year and a half living in Japan before I realized how often and how much I was offending people just by being my go-lucky, happy, friendly Canadian. Yeah, I think Japan's a good, yeah. Just to, again, just to pick up on that one, this is not out of bad intent. Right, this is of course. Just, you, do not, you cannot see beyond that lens that you are having in front of you. Yeah. And, I, so another thing I would like to add is that there are more things that we are where we are similar than we're different. And that base, as you said, the human base is still there. There are lots of things that we share between us and there are way more than we share. We just have to pick those pieces where we do not share. And because we are so human, we do share so much, we can talk about it. And that's the power that we bring into it. When you're reflecting with somebody, you can start talking, but you have to create that space, safe space, where it's okay to ask these questions. Because what I've often experienced is that 
especially me when I've been in this situation where you're working as coach, I've worked, lived in Dubai for 10 years and coached lots of leaders moving to Dubai, having very, very different expectations to moving to an Arab Muslim world. They have these questions that they have difficulties asking to a person from that country. Something that they find so can I ask this question and how ignorant come, do I come across? Having a coach that has been living there for a long time or somebody else, just a colleague that lived there for a long time that you have trust and feel safe enough to ask. So when they're wearing this headscarf, what's that all about? When they're completely covered, what's that about? I've heard this about one of these, and I can say this here because uh, I assume that people assume I've got the best intention. One of, one of the questions that I often get this question about how many wives and how many children. It is a question that when you can feel that it might be inappropriate to ask, but when suddenly sitting with in front of somebody who's lived there, who looks like you, who talks like you, who knows something about this, you can ask these questions. And that's also where the quotes come into the picture. You can ask those questions that you otherwise would find, nah, I'm not gonna yeah. ask that question. Do it, can't be a-, a Yeah, yeah, I've got, Two interesting stories that I want to share. One is I was talking to a gentleman, he's retired now, but I was talking, he's been living in American, living in Singapore for years. And I asked him, oh, I've, I've got, I've got a couple of potential clients and people that have businesses that might be working with in Singapore. I was like, anything to know? And I was like, do I, do I, because Japan, I came from Japan there. It's the suit culture, suit and tie, right? Oh, like you were saying before in Saudi Arabia, you got to wear a suit yeah. and tie, all this stuff. I was like, is there anything to be aware of? He's like, no, you should just be yourself. He's like, I was like, oh, so like formal jacket. And he's like, no, you don't dress formal jacket, just like a nice collared shirt and dress pants. He's like, but it has to be a name brand. If you're not wearing a name brand clothing, they won't take you serious. He's like, you won't understand what happened. Everything will be fine, smiles and handshakes, but you'll never get the deal and they'll never invite you back. And it's because you weren't wearing brand name clothing. And I thought, really? And he said, yeah, you can, it's business casual there, but it has to be a brand name or else they think you're a schmuck. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay. And another one you talk about offending people, not, not intentionally. I remember I, I just come to Japan. I'd been living there already for six months. And I went to the store and it was an international grocer. And I was looking for some mango chutney. We we're having friends over for dinner. We we're cooking some stuff. And I go to the lady at the counter and I'm like, hey, they normally have mango chutney. And I'm like, hey, mango chutney, what doko this guy? Like, where's the mango chutney? And the lady at the counter, so she's just saying, right now is a little, and I'm like looking at her like, what? what it's in the back you're going to check the back like it, it's on a different shelf like what and she was just sweating profusely and, and i could feel like i could feel the tension building up inside of her and at one point she like looks around the store and she covers her mouth and then she uncovers it and she goes and then covered her mouth like she cursed at me and i yeah. realized that i was supposed to interject and when she said right now is a little i was supposed to allow her to save face and be like you know what i actually think i have some at home I actually don't need anything to save her the pressure of letting me down, which for me in Canada is a laughable thing, but that's just a simple example where I come across like a bull in a China shop in this culture. Yeah. And the implication, the trouble is if they came to, for me, Denmark or some of the places that I know so well, like for you, Canada or Philippines or Japan, where you lived for a long time, you, you can, you know, the implications of her having to do this. The implication of an insult in front of a lot of people, the implications of not letting somebody do what they have to do because of the people in the room, the implications, you know what's gonna happen afterwards. You know how this is gonna impact what is gonna happen next for this person. But the person who do not know, have no idea what's going on, 
do not know why they left without the deal. And no, most of all, do not know what's going to impact for this person once you're out of the door. Yes. And I think having that continuously in mind when we are helping people moving to different countries is really important. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I have a friend, again, more stories from Japan. He'd lived there 16 years, spoke fluent mm -hmm. Japanese, or so he thought, was getting married. On his wedding day, he said it was like a movie. He woke up and he couldn't understand anything anybody was saying to him. And it's because in Canada, we've got rude, casual, polite, right? Like polite, you might speak to your grandmother, casual with your friends and rude when someone upsets you, right? Japan, they have five levels of etiquette. And four of them are different degrees of politeness. And he had lived there 16 years and he had studied Japanese and that, and he had never been spoken to at the highest level of etiquette. He said it was like a movie. He was just like ushered through his wedding day, having no clue what anyone was saying, where the night before the wedding, he was out having drinks with his friends and he was just getting along in Japanese. And so again, it's just an example of there are strings at play you have no idea. And I just, I'm trying to let, I'm just trying to feed fuel to your point here. That people really just don't know. No, and the thing is, it's back to the language thing also. It's about if you lived your whole life in Canada and Denmark, you know all the different aspects, or you at least a very large part of them, about how life goes on. Lived there for multiple years, seen different seasons, different you've seen people grow up, people leave the world, die, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You see all these different situations. But but when you come in, you live there for even 16 years or three years. Yeah. You never get to see until suddenly one day you think you're really well versed in this culture and you find yeah. your situation you've never been before and suddenly new language, new yeah. traditions, new rituals, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, yeah. And you find yourself so shocked. So shocked. And that's but, that's but yeah. the global leadership thing and global competencies. The trick is how do you then handle when that happens? And for me, living in Dubai was an epiphany in this question because there are so many different cultures all the time so there's not one culture that you lean up against to say i quote unquote just have to learn how it is to work in japan because in dubai there are the japanese the chinese the filipinos the indians the european the americans etc etc all were their own set of rules yeah so what you learn is that you continue to run into these situations where bam, you have just again made a full path and you just again screwed up. So how, then the big challenge is what happens next? And resilient, if you are very you're capable of coping with these situations and you can just stay calm, keep learning, keep being aware that something is going on, you're not sure what it is, but just keep listening. If you can stay in that mode, develop those skills, then you're far better off in that context. Also, when you move to a country, new country, than you would be if you had learned all the tricks and trades of, in this case, the art world, et cetera, because that's not going to help you when run continues to run into people from a different cultural background with a different set of rules of how things works. Mm. Then you need competences, global skills, where you are resilient, you're capable of coping, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You... That's, when you work with global teams, then that is what... It, that's what really important. You can learn the different cultures, but you cannot learn all the cultures in your global team. And often these right. global organizations, they have offices all over the world. So the team construct is continuous changing. So what you need a set of skills that ensures that you're capable of coping when things go south. And you can hear that somebody here, you're back to your person with a, with, in the shop, 
when you can feel that something here is going on, but you're not sure what it is, what do you do? How do you handle that situation? First of all, you start listening very careful and you start maybe asking yourself, what's going on here? What can I do differently? What is it she's trying to do? Listening for, to, for the cues that you might not otherwise see, listen for those. Mm. But only if you're resilient, only if you can remain calm and in that listening learning mode, only then will you be capable of doing this. And global leaders, global teams, that's essential skills. I love that. I was, that was leading, you just started in to my next question. Do you have a set of rules or guidelines for someone entering like unknown territory? If they know they're walking into something and they may not know what they don't know, and they, there isn't a coach available right now, is there like, what, for example, maybe you would say something like always lead with questions versus a definitive statement. Like, I, and that's just an example. I'm just giving, is there any sort of this, obviously this takes years of practice and experience, but going into the unknown, trying to prepare someone, what would you recommend? Stay safe and ask. So mm-hmm. don't get yourself into complex situations that has big impact. So when you arrive, so for me, people arrive to Dubai, uh, before you engage with your employees, if you come from England, which a lot of them came, or the US to work with a group of Indians or Filipinos, before you enter that space where suddenly you might say something or you might assume something, stay safe, have a conversation with somebody at the office, how things work here, work here. Don't get into big meetings where you suddenly can expose yourself and the impact of your actions might have too, too large of a precaution. Mm. So Recon. Ask questions. And one of my favorite self-talk sentences, what could this also mean? So keep that in mind always. So when you're seeing somebody who's doing something that is what you consider maybe both just different or in extreme context offensive, what could this also mean? What is it that they're doing? What is it that they're saying? And if you get back to your lenses, you hear it with your own framework from at home, you might assume something, but ask yourself, what could this also mean? And then keep that positive attitude, constructive yep. attitude. If they are trying to reach out to you in their best way, yep. um, asking that question continuously upon arrival. But again, stay out of, uh, and I know WBs do that all the time. They stay out of situations to begin with that can get them into trouble, but they might not always self-choose themselves. The yeah, yeah. You arrive to your new destination. You're so anxious to meet your new colleagues. You head directly to the office and you walk in and you start greeting everybody in your very continual Australian or Canadian way, very nice. And then, and suddenly, you, two days after, you hear from one of the, your colleagues that is... Uh, it's kind enough to tell you. So what you just did was the following. Yeah. This is how this, and if you could just, you would then ask yourself, could I just have had that conversation before I walked into the office? Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I made lots of mistakes. I've got lots of stories. One, this is just one of the States. I remember there was an incident. I'll spare the details of that, but I just remember things didn't go the way I planned. It was a business scenario. And I tried to ask, like, why do you think it happened? And they said, you're too nice. I just didn't like yeah. it because you were too nice. Yeah. And so I thought, what? I was too nice and kind to everybody? What? Yeah. I should have walked in and punched him in the nose? Is that I didn't understand? Like, what do you mean? I thought we were meeting to, to break bread. Like, why would I not show up in a gregarious mood to break bread? 
That's such a, it's just the simple, it's the funniest things. And there's other examples too. I have a friend here in the Philippines. Uh, I'll leave the name, the industry out of it, but the, he works in his wife's family's business. They have a very generational business and he constantly <laughs> complains about some of the staff that they have. And apparently they've, some of the different departments are entire families that work there. And he's, it's not a meritocracy. It's in the sense of, it's not always the best. It's just the family ties. And what he doesn't yeah. realize is that in the history of the Philippines, having talked to some of the relatives and read up on this, the the history of the Philippines has had some political turmoil and they've had martial law and lots of people disappeared and never came back. And so one of these instances is the devil versus the devil you don't. And that also, because the families are intertwined, everybody's doing business with each other. So although there's one or two people from a family in a role that are underperforming, you don't want to offend the whole family because it's two families marrying in an essence, right? And so there's just these dynamics where you might think, no, but this person's just underperforming. They just, you need to put a performer in there. But what you don't understand is there's seven, 12, 32 people tied to that one person. And maybe they are a complete idiot. Let's just be frank. Maybe they're completely useless and an idiot. But if they're not your problem, you might make them that family's problem. And yeah. now that family may not appreciate that. And then all of a sudden, your other relatives might lose business. As a result, there's, like you mentioned, the aftermath of the mistakes, right? The trouble here is we come with our individualistic mindset and think this is one person we're talking to. Yes. Yeah. And we're not talking to one person. We're talking to the family. We're talking right. to this. And not wanting to be inappropriate and correcting you, that's not my intent at all. But oh, that's okay. if we, if when we meet a person that does not perform and we think that is the person, that is the challenge, that is the problem, then we completely overlook the dynamics within this family. That person, as you also pointed out, that person might actually have a critical function as a glue, as a connector, as a something, and you don't see it. Yeah, We don't, because we come from outside, we cannot recognize them in our culture, there might not even be that role. Yeah. There might not be that function. <laughs> yeah. <at all>. yeah. <laughs> and here we are, we are, but but yes, we do this all the time. We'll, and the, now we're getting him started. When you got oh, it's you, good. You, it's good. Yeah. We're coming with our performance management systems. Yours yeah. has been big. This We have learned a lot about it and we are beginning getting better at it in Europe also, all over the world. But performance management is typically pinpointed on one person. And then you move to a context where nothing is about one person. It's about family. It's about collective. It's a, And when we say family, in my family terms, it's a... There's my father and my mother and my three siblings. Yeah. yeah. In that context, of which I had to learn the hard way in the Arab world, there is that. And then there's all the cousins. And sometimes these are not blood relatives. These are cousins for different reasons. Yeah. But they, yeah. And if you want to manage the performance of one person, you have to manage, in this case, the performance of a team, of a group, of a family. Very, very different. But if you come with the mindset that I'm just going to make this person perform yeah. this one. Then all is good. Completely ignoring that person is not one person. And yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, no, so, no, 100%. It's not even, the, the challenge here is that it's not even, and we know this also from the, I've worked quite a lot in, in diversity and equity and inclusion in the US, done some big projects with different companies. One of the problems is that it's so systemic. I was going to mention and, that's part of it. It's not even the pre, it might not even be the person. It may be the system or the process that they've been given. 
that could be the oh, issue. Yeah. And again, back to your point, if you don't recognize it's in the system and it's, it is a systemic question, back to your, if you take the performance management system as a system, in there, in it's incorporate all these biases and constraints and restrictions and perspective and worldviews of what is good performer and what is not good performer, blah, blah, blah. But it's a huge topic. But some of the work I did was in diversity inclusion, diversity, equity, and inclusion was in the art world, was actually in how looking at how does diversity, equity, inclusion live out, or how is it lived out, how is it managed across the world? Because if you do it in the US, we have, because of the because of US is so big, we have a sense of how does it work in the US? Because there's the big topic, African-Americans, there are Latinos, et cetera, et cetera. There are those very big groups, there are that dynamic. But then you move to a place like the Middle East, where suddenly it's not about those topics like African-American or that whole history there is about something entirely different. But you then bring back in, you bring this system of how do you do DNI in the US into the Middle East and it's very, very different and you cannot apply it. So simple things like how do you get women into workplace is one of the big topics. Very different. Yeah. How do you do this? And, um, and yada, yada, long story, but again, back to the systemic perspective and how we work in global organizations, how do you develop and how do we design global organizations so that it incorporate these differences and allow those differences to live. Because again, we also know lots of work, research and personal experience knows that diversity leads directly to creativity and innovation. But if it's not managed, then it leads us to friction and a lot of frustrations and definitely not performance. It leads a lot to a lot of challenges that we as global leaders have no way of handling because again, we move in with our mindset, blah, blah. It's yeah. a big thing. <laughs> yeah. The point is that these systems that we develop and we bring into different cultural contexts, into different contexts around the world and the other way, because I work with Danish and German organizations that was bought by Chinese organizations or Indian organizations buying European country companies. And the same thing happens. I was working with this in wind turbine industry, this organization, they would be, they have been bought by an Indian, large Indian company, not mentioning names because that's inappropriate, yeah, but- of course. They implemented rules like if we're going to work seven days a week in India because we need to catch up, you have to do the same thing in Denmark. And you don't tell anybody in Denmark to work seven days a week. You just don't. And if you don't, if you do not, what is what is you call you? If you do not do what they're telling you, you do not accept somebody starts shouting at you in front of everybody, like big time shouting at you. That is inappropriate and not good leadership. But the guy from India, the CEO from, from India, he considered that as a good leadership. So we've been, we're so used to taking our European systems to other places in the world. And now we're beginning face to facing more and more. The other way is happening. The other thing is happening. And mm. that reason is blah, mm. blah. Long story, I'm going to stop here. <laughs> Let's get oh, back no, no, it's good. It's good. It's really, it's, and the challenge is often at some point you burn out. We have that, I don't know, but in Canada and the US, or the US I know, but here in Europe, in, in the Netherlands living now, the burnout thing is big and is considered a very socially big cost for the country. 
also in Denmark, other countries in Europe also. And when you take the burnout case, you could say among global leaders, it's even higher because when you're again confronted with things that first of all, you do not quite understand because you're not sure exactly what's going on. That being said, there are lots, and I'm in my humble sitting here and blah, blah, blah. There are lots of really intelligent, intercultural intelligent and high-performing global leaders. No questions asked they're doing. And I shouldn't even say this out loud because that's it's not appropriate that I'm saying it because I'm assessing them, I shouldn't. But that being said, among leaders at middle level and upcoming leaders, the burnout rate is huge when you're moving from one country to another because, because of you th- knew what worked at home, the systems that you're being given to manage doesn't work, it's difficult to implement them, et cetera, et cetera. And that from, again, from a, you could say from a well-being, which is also becoming a big topic in Europe and US and other places also, but in Europe in particular, well-being, the whole question of well-being in the workplace if you can, if you have a high burnout rate because of cultural differences, because of the impact of that, then has a huge cost for cost for companies and for oh, yeah. society. And, oh, yeah. and that moves into a, that whole topic that is also become getting bigger and bigger. The complexity and uncertainty of the world we're living in is growing tremendously, and because of that, the burn rate, burnout rate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, my advice to you is uh, work on your resilience. Mm. Work, work. I'm working, I'm reading a book at the moment called Grit. I was about to pick it up, but if you search Grit on Amazon or the internet, the, the ability or your grit capability to work on that carefully is definitely one of the very interesting frameworks to think in terms of also when you're working in a global context. Yeah, I would say a big component of grit is having disciplines, like physical health disciplines, like sleep, diet, fitness, and mental health disciplines as well. Just uh, that's there's those can't be those can't be uh, under overstated. They, first, if you're ever flown on an airplane, they tell you if the oxygen mask drop, to put yours on before you try to help anyone else. You can't save someone from drowning if you're drowning yourself. And the resilience, there's a huge connection between physical fitness and health and emotional resilience and mental resilience, but there's also mental health exercises people can do as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So meditation, yoga, very simple things. And it it does that. Yeah. Say again. Gratitude. Gratitude. Yeah. Journaling. And and the thing is, when you say yoga or meditation, people are associated with going off grid for a month and sitting somewhere in Aswam in India or spending every weekend, but it doesn't have to be that complicated. It can be various exercises that you just practice. When you're sitting in your seat on the way, flying from London to Singapore, very simple exercises. That plus your relationship back to the grid and relationship and well-being, having good relationships in your life, is and nurture them mm-hmm. uh, is highly determining factor for how well you're doing. And yeah. again, when you're moving a family, which occurs quite a lot of those moving a family from moving a leader is all moving a family. And yes. if you want to make sure that the leader, she or he is performing well, you have to attend not to the person, but to the whole context, the whole family, make yeah. sure that when they move there, their support network is still there. Right. So well said. 
Peter, you gave so much knowledge. There's so much value in this. People may want to listen to it again and again. I have a page of notes. Where's the best place for people to reach you if they want to learn more? Is it LinkedIn? Or LinkedIn. 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 It will also give you a sense of one of my big passions at the moment, and that is our climate situation. Okay. So people want to learn more. You can go to LinkedIn and search for Peter B Y E. B-I-E-R-G-A-R-D. You can search for Peter Global Teams, perhaps, or search for his full name, Peter, what is it, what I, by Bigard, right? B-Y-E-B-I-E-R-G-A-R-D. Go check him out on LinkedIn. Say hello. Pay attention. Obviously, he's got a wealth of knowledge. Peter, thank you so much for coming and sharing with us all. I do want to be respectful of your time. Uh, we definitely got to have you come back for a follow-up. We got hours more in the tank, I can tell. <laughs> if not for a follow-up here, then it would be great connecting just because just the first conversation we had was amazing. I think this is even better. And I, again, the more you get to know people, the more there is you discover that there's more there is to share and appreciate. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for taking the